Please take your Bible and turn with me to the 109th Psalm. And we're going to look at the first four verses and zero in on part of one verse this morning. Psalm 109, it's the Psalm of David. We're going to read verses 1 through 4. I'll be reading from the New American Standard Bible. And you follow along in whichever version you have with you today. Verse 1 of 109th Psalm. O God of my praise, do not be silent, for they have opened the wicked and deceitful mouth against me. They have spoken against me with a lying tongue. They have also surrounded me with words of hatred and fought against me without cause. In return for my love, they act as my accusers, but I am in prayer. Now, obviously, this is a Davidic psalm, but there are Messianic overtones in this as well. Perhaps you remember or have read about what happened in the fall of 1970 in Huntington, West Virginia, There was an airliner which was coming in at night, late one Saturday night, perhaps even early Sunday morning. And all 70 passengers died in a fireball when the plane misjudged the runway and clipped the tops of trees and all aboard were killed. 37 of the 75 were football players on the Marshall University football team. All five coaches aboard were killed, three trainers were killed, 25 boosters were killed, and all five crew people were killed. And the result of that was there was a stunning response on the part of the student body and the faculty, the administration, the whole Marshall family. It looked like they were going to have to shut down the football program because there were only 18 players who were either red shirt players or players who were at best second string players who went back a different way to their hometown. The appeal was made, however, by the boosters and others that the program would continue. A representative from the university went to the headquarters of the NCAA to plead for the possibility of that school offering opportunity for freshman players to play. At that time, freshmen could not play either varsity football or varsity basketball. Two years later, that was lifted, that restriction. So they got a new coach and other assistant coaches. There was a growing enthusiasm on the university campus. Maybe you saw the movie, We Are Marshall. And that became the mantra of all those associated with that university, we are Marshall. And that was saying, in effect, we have at the very core of who we are a great determination to persevere. And persevere they did. It took them a while to win a game, and it was not necessarily a great opponent whom they defeated, Xavier. I don't even know if Xavier has a football program anymore. But at least they won 17 to 15 over them. And that set the tone for what later became a great run in NCAA history in their conference. Some great players have come out of that university. 
In this passage, which we're looking at this morning, the last sentence which we read in verse 4 reads as follows. Look at it again. But I am in prayer. David is speaking of himself, obviously. He says, I am in prayer. If you look more closely, perhaps your translation, as mine has, the word translated in, in italics. What that means is there is no corresponding word in the original language of this text. David did not use the word in. This is what he literally wrote. I am prayer. What was he saying? He was saying, I am at the very core prayer. I am a person whose essence is the essence of prayer. I am the representation of what real prayer is. And if you stop to think about it, you probably would agree. Because the majority of the Psalms which we have in our Bible were written by David. And what we know is so many of them are prayers. We're going to look at those in some degree of detail, not all of them, but the different facets of prayer that are represented in David. I am Groot. Anybody recognize that? Some of you say, what has happened to the pastor? Well, if you're familiar with Guardians of the Galaxy, either the first or the second, Groot is an extraterrestrial created by the creators of the Marvel Comics series. And he is a person who is viewed in both cases and other literature associated with the movie genre. He's associated with a person who's very selfless. And in both movies... Groot gives of himself. And these cuttings are saved by Rocket Raccoon and regenerates into another Groot. But no matter what size Groot is, or which movie you encounter him in, or which comic you may read, and his story is recorded, he says, only thing he can say, I am Groot. The experts say, and this is taking a little too far, I think, but we'll let them say what they want to say. They're the experts. That if you listen carefully to the inflection in Groot's voice, you can detect that Groot is saying something different every time he says, I am Groot. There are different nuances of meaning just by the way in which he says his introduction, I am Groot. We would think he was limited in his vocabulary, but evidently he's not. But what's he saying when he is Groot? Well, he's saying, I am a loyal friend who is eager to lay down his life for his friends. I have come from another world, and that is what I have done. There are various nuances, various aspects of this multifaceted statement, I am group. It's true in David too. More importantly in David. So when he says, I am prayer, what does that have to do with you and me? It has everything to do with us. It calls to memory a statement that Paul makes. It's actually a command. It's recorded in his letter to the Thessalonians where he says, pray without ceasing. Has that ever puzzled you a little bit? Have you wondered, how can I pray without ceasing? I have work to do. I have sleep I need to get. How can I pray without ceasing? 
Well, we're helped when we look at the word which is translated without ceasing. That word is a word which was used outside the New Testament at the same time when Paul wrote 1 Thessalonians. And it was used to describe a hacking cough. Have you ever had a hacking cough? I've had one more times than I like to remember. And I remember how aggravating a hacking cough is. And it irritates people around you too, doesn't it? They just want to put their hand over your mouth and shut you up when you're doing that hacking, you know? So we get some idea about what it means to pray without ceasing. When people have hacking coughs, those coughs are intermittent. They're ongoing, but there's a break between them. So when the Scripture says pray without ceasing, it does not mean that we are praying all the time, but we're praying intermittently and consistently. Whenever an opportunity arises, we pray. And there are unlimited numbers of possibilities. And David shows various aspects of the concept of biblical prayer. The kind of prayer that you and I are called to. The kind of prayer that we are to pray unceasingly when we have opportunity. So let's dive right in and consider some of the types of prayers which David prayed. Now, some of you are familiar with the acronym ACTS associated with prayer. How many of you have been taught this acronym ACTS? Just by a show of hands. Probably a fourth to a third of the people here have had that. Well, you know what it stands for. First, the A is adoration. The C is confession. The T is thanksgiving. And the S is supplication, which is just a big word, which means asking for God to supply. You see the word supply in the word supplication. Now, I'm going to take the liberty to change that, those letters up, still spell a word, and you'll see why I have chosen to do this. I'm going to say CATS is a better acronym, not because I want to be novel, but because I want to be biblical. Well, you're pretty big for your pants, Mike, saying that you can come up with something better than these other people. But listen carefully to my reasoning, not that it really matters. But in the Bible, in the book of Psalm, David did not read this Psalms, this particular Psalm, Psalm 66. His name is not attached to that Psalm. We don't have the name of the human author. But in 66.18 of Psalms, this is what we read. It says, If I had regarded sin in my heart, the Lord would not have heard me. So if I try to adore the Lord, if I try to worship the Lord, if I try to praise the Lord, He's not going to hear me if I'm harboring sin in my heart. So that's where we must always begin. And David did that in his own life. The reason we know that, in Psalm 139, he closes that psalm with these words. It's a prayer to the Lord. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts. And see if there be any hurtful way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. So what is he doing? He's inviting the Lord. Lord, show me if there's anything in my life that is sinful that I need to be rid of. Because I want you to hear the rest of my praying. In Psalm 19, he makes a similar request. He says to God, show me my hidden faults. Or my hidden sins. 
He's not saying uncover them so everybody else can see them. Otherwise, he would have said that. He's saying, if there are some unknown sins in my life, Lord, would you please reveal them to me? Do you know why he was so intent upon that? Because he wanted the rest of his praying to be heard by the Lord. And this is incredibly important for you and me. If we're going to pray to the Lord, and we're going to pray without ceasing, I guarantee you, I don't want to waste my breath or my time, do you? I want to pray in a way that the Lord will hear my prayers. And so we begin with the whole issue of confession. As we read from Psalm 51, if you return there, hopefully you were interacting with the material. We're only going to look at a couple of verses. But remember the back story of this psalm. David had committed adultery. In addition to that, in order to try to cover up his sin, he committed murder. Actually, 30 people, maybe 31, were murdered because David was trying to cover up his sin of adultery with Bathsheba. And finally, he was found out. The prophet Nathan came to him and pointed his sin out. And so we have Psalm 51. We also have Psalm 32, the great penitential Psalms of David. He's very clear here about sin and the need to be done with it and the fact that only God can do anything with it, all depending upon our confession and repentance of our sin when we become aware of it. Look at verse 4 of Psalm 51. Against you... You only I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. Let's pause a moment and think about that whole story regarding the sin of David. He committed adultery with Bathsheba. She was a willing partner, evidently. We don't know all of that, but it's assumed that she was a willing partner, but still... He could have refused to take the bait that Satan put before him and not gone to bed with her. But he went ahead and took it hook, line, and sinker. He also ordered Uriah, her husband, to come home from battle. Once he arrived, he called him into his chambers, fed him well, and said, Look, man, you need to go to be with your wife. Go be with her. Here's why he did it. She was already pregnant with his child. And he was thinking, he was scrambling around, I've got to get rid of this problem. And so I'll figure it, and surely he'll take the bait. It would not have been sin for him to go and be with his wife, obviously. But he said, no, I won't do it. Do you know why he wouldn't do it? Because he was such a loyal man. He was loyal to David. He was a Hittite. He wasn't even a Jew. But he was loyal to David. He was one of his finest fighting men. He would die for David and had put himself in harm's way over and over and over again in the service of King David. King David had witnessed that. So he got him all liquored up. He got drunk. I'm not not talking about David, but Uriah. But even in his drunkenness, he wouldn't go to be with his wife. So David sent by him a message to Joab, who was the general of the army. And in that message was an order to send Uriah with 30 of the crack forces under his leadership to the hottest spot in the battle that was being fought. David assumed that 
Uriah would be killed. At least he hoped he would be. And that happened. So David, it seems to me, had sinned against Bathsheba. And he had sinned against Uriah, for sure. Two ways. Taking his wife for his own, and also sending him into a place to be killed, murdered. But notice, David says, against you and you only I have sinned. I hope you understand that sin is fundamentally against God. Basically against God. We break the laws of God when we sin. We break the laws of a holy God. But not just a holy God, but a loving Father. David did that. David knew that. My mentor, at the age of 17, school had just let out in northwest Arkansas. He went with a bunch of his friends to a public swimming pool. The pool was not heated like some of our pools are here in this area of the world when it's still cool outside. The evenings were dropping down in the low 60s there in the Ozark Mountains in northwest Arkansas. And when my mentor dived into the water, and when he came up, he was cold. It was so cold. And he said, GD, but he put some other letters associated with it. As he swam to the edge of the pool, a friend of his by the name of Bob Biney came to him. And he reached down to give Herb a hand out of the water. And Herb, as he told me this story, said, he got really close to me and he said it very quietly. He didn't say it to embarrass me, but this is what he said. He said, Herb, do you know you just damned the only person who loved you enough to die for you? And Herb said he was so shaken by that. If that young man had shared the gospel with him, he would have given his life to Christ that moment. Almost another year passed before he really gave his life to Christ. It was on his 18th birthday, April the 6th. Of 1953, when he gave his life to Jesus Christ. It was on Easter Sunday morning. He was not in a church building. He was alone. But he had been under conviction of his sin all that time. Realizing he had indeed damned the only person who loved him enough to die for him. God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And he was under great conviction. So, when we think of this matter of sin, who's it against? It's against God. David lived with the pain of that for probably over a year. He tried to stuff it. He tried to figure a way. I guarantee you he sang praises. He probably tried to compose some psalms. I bet he couldn't compose one. He had done a lot of writing before, which is contained in our Bible, but I'm sure he couldn't because there was a stoppage. The Spirit of God was not communicating with him. And look at verse 10. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. When I sin or you sin, what are we to do? We're to confess our sin. And if we confess our sin, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to purify us from all unrighteousness. This is what the Word of God teaches us. And look at verse 11. Do not cast me away from your presence. Can you sense 
the fear of God in his heart, in the best sense of the word, and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. He had had such a precious relationship with God the Holy Spirit, he was afraid that would be snatched from him after his sin was finally exposed by another person who was a prophet of God. Well, confession, would you agree, was a part of David's prayer life? It's recorded for us. There are other places in Scripture where we can see this. Well, let's go further with our acronym, CATS. C-A, no changing of any of these various aspects of prayer. Adoration. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. That begins and ends the eighth psalm. We have a hymn in our hymnal, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name. In all the earth. Majesty. Worship is majesty. Another song. And these are songs which extol and honor and praise God for who He is. And David was all about that. His psalms are overflowing with adoration to God. Let's go to a prayer that David prays, though, that's not in the psalms. I happen to believe it's his best prayer of all his prayers that are recorded in Scripture. It's found in 1 Chronicles 29. The setting of this psalm, David has recognized Solomon as his successor. He had many sons, but Solomon was his choice to succeed him. And Solomon, by the way, was the son of Bathsheba, the product of their marriage, not the product of their adulterous relationship. That child died as an infant. But Solomon was that son. So the background is set. Also, the rest of the background is a collection of an offering to build the temple. And David did not limit his giving to money out of the coffers of the nation of Israel. He added to that all of his amassed wealth, his great fortune. He gave it all. Now look at verse 10 with that as a background. So David blessed the Lord in the sight of all the assembly. What does it mean to bless the Lord? What's that another way of saying? He praised the Lord in the sight of all the people. And David was not a person to hold back when it came to expressing his praise to the Lord. He was not some kind of mild-mannered person when it came to showing his adoration to the Lord. Look at what he says. This is one of the greatest, in fact, it's... Echoed in the book of Revelation, as you will see. Blessed are you, O Lord God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. Indeed, everything that is in the heavens and the earth, yours is the dominion, O Lord. And you exalt yourself as head over all. Both riches and honor come from you. And you rule over all, and in your hand is power and might, and it lies in your hand to make great and to strengthen everyone. Now, therefore, our God, we thank you and praise your glorious name. Now, here we see David doing what he often does in his Psalms. He puts praise and thanksgiving very close to each other. And so, what I'm going to say to you is, don't worry too much about exactly what the difference is between praising God and thanking God. Don't sweat that, okay? Just praise Him and thank Him. 
those who are supposed to know say that praise usually has to do with praising the Lord for his traits, his attributes, those things which are his characteristics. And that's what David has done as he began this prayer to the Lord. His majesty, his victory, all those things, his power, his ability to strengthen. Thanking God is not praising him for who he is, but it's thanking him for what he's done. If you want to make that distinction, and I think there's a legitimacy to that, but not an absolute necessity. Just praise God and thank God. He'll receive it. Look at verse 14. But who am I and who are my people that we should be able to offer as generously as this? For all things come from you and from your hand we have given you. Where did these great offerings come from? Did they come from David and the people of Israel? Because David was not the only one who brought offering. I failed to mention that. The people respond beautifully and generously too. Well, it's like God the Father puts his hand down and David takes out of the treasury of God and the people take out of the treasury of God. The money which they hold, the property which they hold, the treasures which they have really are given to them by God to be stewarded properly, to be managed properly. And they're just taking that which had been given to them to begin with. David understood that, and every follower of Christ really understands that. The Bible says that we who know Christ have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. And the Bible says, Paul writes, My God shall supply all your needs according to the glorious riches that are in Christ Jesus. How many riches are in the Lord There's no end to them. There's an infinite number of riches. So David says, we know, Lord, that we have only given what you have entrusted us to manage. That's true of our gifts today to the Lord. Look at verse 15. For we are sojourners before you and tenants as all our fathers were. Our days on the earth are like a shadow and there is no hope. O Lord our God. All this abundance that we have provided to build you a house for your holy name, it is from your hand and all is yours. Since I know, O my God, that you try the heart and delight in uprightness, I, in the integrity of my heart, have willingly offered all these things. So now with joy I have seen your people who are present here make their offerings willing to you. O Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, our fathers, Preserve this forever in the intentions of the heart of your people and direct their heart to you. Now, what's he doing here? He has praised the Lord. He has thanked the Lord. And now what is he doing? He's praying for the people who've given. That that moment, that great joyous moment, as they were assembled in Jerusalem preparing for the building of the temple, that they were praising the Lord. He said, etch this on their memories. Etch how they gave so freely and willingly and joyfully and what you did with what they gave. He's petitioning for them, isn't he? He's doing what we call supplicating for them. And then he continues his supplication, this time for an individual, Solomon, his son, about to become king. He says in verse 19, And give to my son Solomon a perfect heart to keep your commandments, your testimonies, and your status, and to do them all, and to build the temple for which I have made provision. So what's he asking? Lord, please put 
a heart of obedience in my son. So that he will be the kind of leader who will bring glory to you as he leads this nation of Israel after I'm gone. So we see in this one prayer, three elements. No confession here in the sense of confessing sin for sure. But we do see adoration, thanksgiving, and supplication. Now what does this have to do with us? Well, it has everything to do with us. If we want to be people like David, we are going to be people who will be people who incorporate these types of praying into our praying. It's not complicated. It really flows from a heart that understands God and wants to honor God. Let's talk of the remaining time we have about this matter of supplication, however. David prayed for himself. Not in this prayer that we just read, but he prays for himself. For instance, in Psalm 57, 1 through 3, in Psalm 61, 1 through 4, to mention only a few. We don't have time to read those, but if you're taking notes, jot those references down. Psalm 57 and Psalm 61, you'll see for yourself. He prayed for himself. Is it wrong for you and me to pray for ourselves? Is it wrong? Not at all. The Bible says, call to me and I will answer you and tell you great and mighty things which you do not know. The Lord wants us to call out to Him. He wants us. He's our Father. Isn't that what David said about Israel? God is your Father. The Lord is your Father. Yes, He's our Father. If you, being evil, know how to give good gifts, Jesus said to His disciples, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give you good gifts? God gives us everything richly to enjoy, is what the Bible says. So, there's nothing wrong with asking. The Bible says in the book of James, you do not have because you do not ask. Why don't you ask God for some things? Self-denial is part and parcel of following Jesus. But I guarantee you, Jesus taught His men who followed Him and the women who followed Him To ask the Father. We live in that dependent relationship upon God. There's nothing wrong. In that same section, however, in James, it says you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend it selfishly. And what that would mean is you would just block everybody else out except you with regard to what you're asking for. Have you ever noticed when you have read what we call the Lord's Prayer, the way in which Jesus taught His men to pray, His disciples to pray? This is very interesting. We know the introduction, it's adoration, our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And then he goes on to say, what does he say? Give us this day our daily bread. He did not say, give me this day my daily bread. Me is included in us. But what we need to understand is, in the family prayer, if you want to call it that, it's the disciples' prayer. We are linked to each other. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. So we, in our praying, we can petition for ourselves. We can supplicate from God, Lord, supply my daily needs. And at the same time, in the same breath, say, Lord, supply our needs. Make me aware, Lord, of the needs of my brothers and sisters in Christ. Help me to have the kind of relationship with them 
where I can know what their needs are. Help them to be comfortable in sharing what their needs are so I can pray for them and maybe even be a source of supply from You, Lord, because it's from Your hand that I have whatever I have that I give to people. It's not from my hand, Lord. It's from Your hand. Intercession is a vital ministry that the Lord would have you and me to have. Did you know that? We're to pray for God's people. The prophet Samuel, when he is being pushed aside by the whole nation of Israel. Here's the great prophet, a great judge. He was the leader politically and spiritually in the nation. And he's being pushed aside. He's an old man. And he's being pushed aside. They want a king. Just like all the other nations. And God said, okay, give them a king. He earmarked the person, Saul, to be the king. And when Samuel is basically giving his farewell address to the people as their spiritual leader and their political leader, he says this, Moreover, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. It's a sin, not just for spiritual leaders, but for us not to pray for each other. You probably had not thought about that in a while. Some of you know it, but maybe that's a new idea. That's something we need to confess and repent of and start being more conscious of other people. This is our calling. It's just like Jesus, by the way. In Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25, the Word of God says that Jesus always lives to intercede for us. Do you know right now what Jesus Christ is doing? He's seated at the right hand of God the Father by the throne of grace, and He's pleading to the Father for you and me if we're in Christ. He's praying for us. And it's so critically important. If for one moment He quit interceding for us, we'd lose our salvation. One moment. He pleads His own work on the cross in the resurrection for us, which makes us acceptable to God and gives us an avenue to get to God in salvation, but also in our own praying. Helmut Tilica, the great theologian, uh, pastor of post-World War II Germany, preached to thousands every Sunday in the cathedral, the Free Church Cathedral in Hamburg. In his book, On the Lord's Prayer, he writes these words. I'll never forget them. I read them once, and not because I have such a good memory, they just stuck. This is, this is what it says. It says, It is presumptuous to speak to people about God until you have first spoken to God about people. Imagine what would happen if I prayed for all of you before I got up to preach or teach the Word of God. Do you think that would make a difference? Imagine what would happen if all of you prayed for your pastors and your elders and the other teachers in our faculty here. When they get ready to teach, do you think it would make a difference in the kind of teaching you receive? The clarity and the power that would come? From such teaching, it's no surprise. We're to pray for God's people. The Bible says a command in James 5.16, pray for one another. 
What are we to pray for each other? Well, Paul gives us a hint about what his needs were. In Ephesians 6, he calls himself an ambassador in chains. And he says, pray that I will make known with boldness and clarity the mystery of the gospel. So we can pray for one another in such settings. It's not just for preachers, by the way, not just apostles. It's for all of us who are eager to share the good news of Christ. I think of Daniel. Remember Daniel? The wonderful young man. He had three friends. Mishael, Hananiah, and Azariah. And here, this foursome found themselves in Babylon. They were wise beyond their years. And they were part of a group of people who would be called wise men. Get that? The Magi probably came from out of that group a few hundred years later. But the reality is, The king, Nebuchadnezzar, had a dream. It was a disturbing dream. And he told all of his magicians, all of his conjurers, all the Chaldeans, as they gathered there, I've had this dream, and I'm deeply disturbed. And he says, in my spirit, I'm deeply concerned. And then he says, you're going to interpret it for me. And if you don't, you're going to be dead meat. He said, I'm going to tear you limb from limb. And now I'm going to go to your homes. I'm going to destroy your homes. I'm going to wipe the memory of you off the map. Well, this put them in a nervous twit. Here's why. He said, if they asked him, they said, what is the dream? He said, I'm not going to tell you. You've got to know what the dream is and give the interpretation. Well, they were scared to death. They were lobbying like crazy for some time and just begging him, tell us, tell us, tell us. He said, no. Well, the word reached Daniel and his friends, who evidently weren't in that bigger meeting. And then this is what Daniel said to his buddies. He said, pray for me. I'm going to go and seek an audience with King Nebuchadnezzar and see if he will allow me time to pray more and then give the nature of the dream and the interpretation. And as the story went, that's exactly what happened. And it was due directly to intercessory prayer. People coming together to pray. What a beautiful story. We're to pray and intercede even for our enemies. Jesus says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Anybody persecuting you? What's God's call to you? Same as to me. Pray for them. Remember when Jesus was on the cross? The first thing that is recorded that He said from the cross, Father, forgive them. Talking about those who had participated in His kangaroo court, having Him unjustly tried and condemned and then crucifying Him. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. Amazing. Stephen echoes this prayer when he's being stoned by the same group of people. We're to pray for people who don't know Christ. There's uh, an illustration I want to give you. It was set in the InterVarsity Christian Fellowship of Stanford University in the 1980s. So the story goes, there was one young man who was associated with many of the participants in the IV group. And he was an out-and-out atheist. He wasn't pleasant about it either. He wasn't polite. He was very rude in his rejection of God. 
He loved to try to put a wrench in the works of these believers' hearts to dissuade them from following the Lord, but it didn't work. They got their heads together and they said, let's try an experiment. For one week, let's pray around the clock for his salvation. Do you know before the week was over, this man had come to Christ, gave his life to Jesus. Amazing. What God does in answer to the prayers of His people for the salvation of people who don't know Jesus. Wouldn't that be a novel approach to evangelism in this church? It sure would. God would use it. Let's finish by going to the book of Colossians. The fourth chapter for what I think is a fabulous illustration of this matter of interceding for supplicating for one another. In chapter 4, verses 12 and 13, this is what we read. Epaphras, who is one of your number, a bond slave of Jesus Christ. Now, let me stop here. Epaphras was not an apostle. Epaphras was not a prophet. Epaphras, as far as we know, was not a teacher. He was not an elder. He was not a deacon. Epaphras was just a member of the church. Hope you sense the sarcasm and just a member. Every person is important, significant to the body of Christ. And you don't have to be articulate to pray to the Lord. Because the Lord knows what's in your heart. In fact, the Holy Spirit puts it in your heart. He works in our hearts to tell us and teach us how to pray, what we need to pray. We're dependent upon Him fully. Such was Epaphras. And He sends you His greetings, always laboring earnestly for you in His prayers. The word translated laboring earnestly, listen to it. I'm going to say it the way it would be spoken in the original language. Agonizomai. Do you hear a word or two from that in our English? Agonize. Agony. He agonized. Have you ever agonized in prayer for people? This was the Spirit of Christ in him. This probably had as a background in the mind of Paul and Epaphras about Jesus' agony in the Garden of Gethsemane as he prayed. That you may stand perfect and fully assured in all the will of God. If you ever wondered, what should I pray for you? If you're my brother in Christ or my sister in Christ. Well, here's a good starting point. Pray that I or someone else may stand perfect. That does not mean morally perfect. It doesn't mean perfect in the sense without flaws. It's a word which means functionally perfect. Fulfilling its intended purpose. Pray that I, if you pray for me, will fulfill God's intended purpose for me. That's a good starting point. And that I would be fully assured in all the will of God. That is to say that I would be convinced that what I'm doing is the will of God, if in fact it is the will of God, and I will be at peace about that. Lots of people are wondering, what is God's will for my life? Ask God. He will reveal it to you by His Spirit in His Word, and internally you'll have the witness of the Spirit as well, that what you're doing is the will of God. And be convinced of it. Now look at verse 13. For I testify for Him that He has a deep concern for you. And for those who are in Laodicea and Hierapolis. Now let me stop here. The phrase that 
arrested me as I was thinking of this for this message. Deep concern. Where did that deep concern originate? Well, from the heart of Christ. He was filled with the Spirit. Christ lived in him. That's for sure. But what I've experienced over the course of my life as a follower of Christ is that when I pray for another person, I have, in a sense, a relationship time with that person. I'm praying to the Lord, but I'm bringing that person with me into the presence of the Lord. And one of the benefits of being a pastor is I probably pray more. I'm assuming way too much here probably. But I probably pray more for people in the church than the average person does. I have more time and I feel a sense of responsibility. And I have learned that my concern for my brothers and sisters in Christ is in direct proportion to the time I spend with them, whether it's face-to-face in the flesh or in my prayers. You want to get deep concern for the people in the body? Start praying for them. It will escalate. And you will love the church. You will love the people of God. If you have trouble loving people, start praying for them. That will change everything. That will change the landscape of this church too. Let me finish with a story. Many of you have seen the Dunkirk movie. I've seen it twice and I could see it every week and never grow tired of it, I think. It's so powerful. Perhaps what you do not know, and it's not shown in the movie, that the Lord was in the events. And the reason I know that is because George VI, King of England, in May sent forth a declaration for all the people to go the next Sunday to their houses of worship. And they were to devote time that day to pray that this group of British soldiers who were pinned against the English Channel that they would be able to get home. It was an impossible prayer to be. It was a miracle that they got home because their ships were being sunk by U-boats and by bombers coming over and their fleet was almost decimated. And then in addition to that, he said, any of you who has a fishing vessel or a pleasure vessel for sailing, would you please consider going across the channel and helping with the rescue movement? At the same time, for some unknown, even to this day, reason, as the war machine of the Third Reich was sweeping, and in a month's time, it went all the way across France to the English Channel, just decimating the French and the Belgium and others, just swept across. And there was this this little section of land that was still somewhat safe for the Brits. And they were waiting for someone to come. Hitler stopped the movement against the counsel of his generals. He stopped it. They said, Furor, why? We have them. It won't be any days, many days, and they'll be totally destroyed, and we will have won the war. We will have Great Britain under our control. Never answered. There was also a storm which came and settled over that area up front didn't go any further than Dunkirk, and it made it impossible for the Luftwaffe, the German Air Force, to come and bomb the people who were waiting for someone to come and pick them up. And you know the rest of the story. 800 ships came and went and came and went. And according to the record, 
the English Channel was more placid than it had ever been seen before. Storm, leaders saying, hey, we're going to stop and take a break, and all these people risking their lives. It was the miracle of God because the people of God prayed. John Newton, many of you know him as the author of Amazing Grace. Here's another piece of poetry he wrote that's probably in a hymn somewhere. Talking about when we come to the Lord. Thou art coming to a king, large petitions with thee bring. For his grace and power are such, none can ever ask too much. Have you been asking the Lord for big things, for His glory? Now to Him who is able to do exceedingly, abundantly, beyond all that we can ask or imagine, that's the God whom we know through Jesus Christ. And we piddle around with this matter of faith when we have that kind of power to trust God for. Let's pray. Lord, we come and thank You for this day. We thank You for the time You've allowed us to worship. Lord, make us like David. May it be said of this church, we are prayer. That we are a people who relish our relationship of prayer with You. Change our hearts, O God. Renew a right spirit within all of us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 God bless you.